Hey, fellow gamers, the holiday is upon us, and uh, Rolling for Change has a few more tricks up its sleeve before we close out the year. Uh, in this episode, I'm very excited to talk to Brennan Jordan, who uh, runs a business called Roll for Progress in Philadelphia, and he uses role-playing games in his therapeutic sessions. He does uh, group sessions, and you know, one of the goals of Rolling for Change is to to address the lack of information that we have about the the practitioners that are out there that are working that are already doing this amazing work of using games in their therapeutic practices and while i'd like to expand that and make sure it it attaches to how people use games in business and how can people use games in training and all these different possibilities my personal bent is is therapeutic and so a lot of times you're going to hear that we're talking about how we use games in therapy but if you're out there and you have interest in those other things, please let me know and we'll try to move in that direction. Um, but anyway, uh, this is a great conversation between myself and Brennan just after PAX Unplugged. And uh, I think that we were able to tease apart a little more information about what is this thing we're doing? What, how, do you, how do you use role-playing games in therapy? It's a crazy idea coming from a crazy mind, like almost the most rebellious possible thing you could do against the, the, standard, uh, the standard guard of therapeutic practice to uh, use these things that are so different than what has been used in the past. But hey, you know, role-playing games probably weren't really around when Freud was around or when, even when Jung was around. And, and they probably got used to the idea of projective tests uh, and, and, you know, of course the Rorschach came along. But along comes our, our collaborative storytelling efforts and the ideas of using role-playing games. And so the, it's drama therapy in a sense, but it's drama therapy with a fiction as opposed to drama therapy working towards a non-fiction. And so there, there's so much we can, can discuss and, and round out about this. But here's just another piece of the picture talking with Brennan Jordan from Rolling for Progress. Oh, Roll for Progress, sorry. Welcome to Rolling for Change, a podcast about the therapeutic and transformational nature of gaming. Today I am talking to Brennan Jordan of Roll for Progress, uh, which is uh, very close to Rolling for Change. <laughs> I, where'd you come up with that name? Um, I don't know. I, I think um, when I was looking into different ideas for doing the project, I just made a, a large list of a lot of different names. And, you know, I reviewed it with my wife, some of my friends that I play D&D with, and that's the one that most of the folks seem to like the most. Okay. It's a great name. It's, it's very close to a name that's uh, close to my heart. Um, it's Roll for Progress, not Rolling for Progress, so I don't know if I made that mistake, but... Uh... I've made that mistake several times when I've said, oh, yeah, he's, he's from Rolling for Progress. No, it's Roll for Progress. Yep. And so uh, Roll for Progress is a, it's a therapeutic gaming group, basically, that you run on, I guess, weeknights uh, in Philadelphia? Yes. Yes. So 
I've been working as a therapist for about 10 years or so in the Philadelphia area and surrounding areas. And I had decided not, not this past PAX Unplugged, but the one beforehand when I got a chance to see a few of the panels from Jack from Badana and the Adams from Game to Grow that, hey, that you know what, this is something that I'd like to do as an adjunct to my full-time job. Yeah. I originally tried to start it in the suburbs of Pennsylvania and, um, you know, do, do a few different issues, um, places that I could run the groups. I moved it over to Philadelphia and it just kind of picked up from there. Okay. And do you work with, what's your population that you work with? Um, right now I am working with a group of 10 to 12 year old boys mm-hmm. and I have a wait list together. Um, I'm trying to start a few other groups, but trying to, you know, make sure similar ages are there. So, so it, within the group that I work with, um, I'm dealing with all sorts of issues. Um, there are some issues related to ASD, ADHD, other behavioral issues, and primarily a lot of the focus is on social skills training. Okay. And, and I think that I've found that, 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 uh, role-playing games are a great place to do that social skills training. Everyone I talk to, that does this therapeutic RPG stuff, does some kind of social skills building. Um, so before I get deep into what Role for Progress is doing right now, let's kind of go, let's get some history here. So what's your gaming history? Where where do you come from? So it, it's a little interesting in some ways and different from a lot of other folks. So I'd say my first love of just kind of role-playing and pretend play really came from growing up. Um, my older brother spent a lot of time with me and my friends doing, you know, just basically making up games that were more close, that, that were closer to like live action role-playing games where we would be certain characters, whether it was like a cops and robbers type scenario or some type of fantasy type scenario, and then he would play out all the other characters. Um, I actually, I I got into fantasy role-playing type video games and computer games very early on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think Ultima Online, um, a lot of much younger folks don't know that, but that that was essentially (laughs) World of Warcraft with one-eighth the graphics and I think one of the first uh, MMORPGs. And I played that for a long time. I played a lot of the uh, Blizzard and strategy games. And for so long, I said to myself, like, I had heard of Dungeons and Dragons. I've heard of other role-playing games. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm into these computer games and I'm into these video games, but not quite ready for that. And then I want to say about maybe six, seven years ago or so, one of my old friends from college was like, hey, I was just cleaning out my... Um, attic my gar- or no cleaning out his garage i found a bunch of these old dungeons and dragons books from the 70s from my uncle the original ones how about we give it a shot and you know one session in and i was absolutely hooked wow okay was that uh edition two or even further no back? no it was ad and d very first edition with oh, uh, wow. okay thaco and you know all the number crunching and crazy math when it came to leveling up. So yeah, that's where I got my start. And at what point did you say, you know what, this is really going to be something that has, it's made a change in my life and it can make a change in other people's lives. Well, so 
as I said, I've been working as a therapist for about 10 years and I've done a lot of work with children. And one of the things that I've, I've always said, especially to other therapists, I'm a clinical supervisor in my main role. Mm-hmm. I say the th- three things need to be in place for therapy to be effective and therapy to work. And it's that the client needs to have some need to be in therapy. They have some goal that they need to work on. They need to be ready to be in therapy. They need to be ready and willing to do the work. And then third, they need to want to be there. And in the majority of my work with kids, they're they're usually sent to therapy by their parents. They don't. Right. It's not necessarily something they want. They're just talking to a stranger. And for a lot of therapists, especially a lot of new therapists, I definitely fell into this whole the thought of like, okay, I'm going to work with this child the same way I might work with an adult. We're going to sit down. I'm going to have them tell me about you know, their feelings and their issues, and we're going to do processing. But for most therapists that have tried to do that, they know that doesn't really work. And so at that point, I just started trying to do different creative things. And, you know, some of that included, I think I had mentioned in a conversation with you before using like the Don Jones assessment. Mm -hmm. You did mention that. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically an old art therapy activity from the 70s that is pretty much a role-playing game. You describe four four scenarios, you have the children draw those scenarios, and then there's different interpretations for what they could mean. Um, as I was playing Dungeons & Dragons with my friends, I had just kind of thrown out that idea of, you know what, it would be great if I could use Dungeons & Dragons as a form of therapy. And, you know, like, like so many of us before we found each other thought like, Oh wow, that this is this great unique novel idea that I just came up with. And I can't believe nobody else thought of it. You know, that very week, one of my buddies from my group sent me articles about the Madonna group. Uh-huh. They had already done it. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, Jack from the Madonna group will say, you know, that I think they had a similar experience and there were some others doing it before as well. And, it was great to see that and you know it was shortly after that i saw jack and the adams from game to grow present at pax and you know i thought wow these are people that are established they're doing it they have some really great ideas i i think i want to throw my hat in the ring and give this a go absolutely you know I, i've been wanting to kind of like timeline it to see okay jack when did you come up with this idea brennan when did you come up with this idea Adam, when did you come up with this idea? And just to see if there's like a block of time in which this idea descended upon our consciousness. Hundredth monkey. That's uh, that's what I've talked about it as before. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. So in in the in your plane, obviously you got something out of it enough to say that this was worth pursuing. And I don't know if you can remember that moment where you're like, this is really doing something to me because for me. As and I'm coming at it from more of a board game standpoint because I, I play a table not not tabletop role playing games but tabletop board games. Um, at what point did you kind of recognize this is having an impact on me? There is something happening here that is is growth oriented or therapeutic for me. Well, I think really recognizing the similarities between the characters I chose in different aspects of myself. Um, so when, when I started playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends, I, I would always play rogues because I felt rogues were essentially 
the character that best suits my personality, where I feel my strengths are, you know, kind of always feeling like that person that's maybe not the leader of the group, maybe not the person that's going to follow all the rules, but is really skillful in a few different areas and has those couple of set purposes. And through just role-playing out different scenarios, I had a great first DM, that buddy of mine that found the books yeah, um, in his garage. I just found it so helpful. And I, I recognized that some of the role plays and some of the situations that I was acting out were really reflective of things that were going on in my life in the time. Um, I think an- another really good example was that I struggled a good a bit or I struggled a good bit when I changed roles from working as a full-time therapist to working in more administrative roles, becoming a clinical supervisor, you know, a manager of sorts at different agencies around the city. Mm-hmm. Um, because being the authority figure was nothing that really ever clicked with me. I was always the one to rail against authority and all that. At the same time, I think subconsciously, because I definitely wasn't thinking about it, Um, When I started a new campaign, I changed from being a rogue to a lawful good paladin who in his past was the commander of vast armies. And then I had to act out this really assertive, you know, like authority figure. And that within itself was so helpful for me, even in transitioning job duties. And that's when I really started looking at it like... You know, there's a lot of theories about dreams where essentially the purpose of dreams are to prepare you for something that you might face in your life. Mm -hmm. And I made the connection between that and also Dungeons and Dragons, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that we're playing out certain scenarios, we're playing out certain roles that are going to prepare us. You know, it's practice and training. We get to try a few things out and see how it goes and how it feels to do it before in a safe setting yeah I, I mean you hope it's a safe setting i was just talking to you before we started the show about the challenge of finding a safe setting to start practicing some of those roles and uh, I, I like the idea of uh our our gaming experiences being a way to prepare us for the life events that are going on outside of it i usually think of it in terms of skill building i think of it in terms of bleed like how much of your character is showing up in your in your role play how much of your role play is showing up in your life but i don't think of it as being a preparatory ground for for that because i just stepped into a a supervision i've been a supervisor for two years but i just stepped into a role of being a clinical supervision specialist basically and i i hadn't even really thought of the idea of using my time in rpgs to kind of play out what that's like so that that's an exciting direction to go in as well Oh, definitely. And, and I'd highly recommend it. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever asked you like what type of characters that you usually play. Um, but if it's not, you know, like that lawful good commander type, something like that, I'd highly recommend it. It's okay. very okay. good training for management. <laughs> I usually play someone who is chaotic good. I usually play someone who sits at the back of the pack, provides a great deal of support, but doesn't really get directly into the action. I'm, I'm the trickster guy. I'm interested in being, you know, uh, playing an almost like um, rebellious character, rebellious against the group, rebellious against the group's ideas. I'm not a hack and slash guy. And I, I don't think I've ever been able to play a guy who could just go in and just start hacking people with no remorse. 
And I'm sure that's a reflection of my person. Um, but I don't think some of the people that I play with get it because they're like, no, we're going to go in here and we're going to murder hobo this whole dungeon. I'm like, no, 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 let's talk to the guy and see if he, let's see if we can get him to talk to us. And they're like, no, I'm not having it. <laughs> so it, and it, so it's a little bit role play going on because of course that's the characters that I'm with, but I, I get stuck in the, the barrier between, well, is this really, are they judging me when they're not accepting that this is what I want to do? Or is this just in the game? And I've never actually stopped the game and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not feeling I'm not feeling this right now. Can you tell me what's going on? But I think there's a lot of that going on in a lot of people's role plays. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. And that's, as you said before, that a game could the game could be a safe place, but that's extremely important to find. And again, I, I was mentioning to you before we got started about um, Reddit and all the different subreddits that help folks become better DMs. Well, a lot of D&D players that surf Reddit a lot, they may be familiar with RPG horror stories. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, you mean as a book or as like, I've seen it at conventions where they do uh, your worst your worst dungeon ever or something like that, where they talk about it in uh, in a forum type setting. Yeah, so essentially it's a subreddit where, so basically very large message board where people post about their worst experiences in games. And so many of the posts on there are cringeworthy. And, you know, my initial thought, again, I've been extremely lucky that all the groups that I played with and had gotten together with, primarily because the majority of them have been friends I've known for years, have been very safe settings and you know, everybody's been accepting of differences, even if we have different ideas and different ways that we want to play the game. But so many folks have had ex- just bad experiences. And, you know, that um, some of the messages on there really highlight that and show the importance of having a safe group. Yeah, and I, I don't think I had ever kind of equated it to needing a safety net. Um, even... Even prior to having, uh, you know, recently we had Sean Reynolds on and he talked about consent in gaming that he and uh, Shauna Germain wrote, which is a great primer for, you know, how to establish a safe space at the table. But prior to that, I hadn't even really thought about the the role of the DM as being almost therapeutic-like in the sense that you have to provide a safe space for everyone to present themselves as they are. But they're presenting as they are in role as opposed to presenting themselves as they are in person. And... I had just never even equated those two things. And now looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, okay. The, the DM and the therapist have very similar roles at times. Oh, certainly. And I, I won't talk too much about it because I know it was covered extensively in the Consent and Gaming episode. But really, the importance of having those outs, so whether using the X card or you know how they use No Thank You Evil in mm-hmm. the game No Thank You Evil as a way out if something becomes too triggering, too scary. That's that's really important, and I think that's one of the hardest skills to master as a DM in being assertive with enforcing those boundaries. But yeah, as, as a therapist, especially for a therapist that runs groups, that's one of the most important things, establishing those rules from the get-go and making sure that you're consistent in enforcing them. It's probably also very similar to therapist in that, and I don't know if you had this experience, but I get the feeling that most therapists have this experience. When you first go into 
like your first office, the first time you go in and you're meeting with that person and you're no longer under the guise, like you're no longer under anybody else's watchful eye and you're just there flying solo and you get that moment where you're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I'm doing this. How do I help this person? This person is, is not understanding me and just like that whole imposter syndrome moment. And I, I have the realization that people probably go through that as DMs as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, I think part of it as well is it, it's something new. If you haven't done it before, um, there's a performative aspect of it. Um, everyone, to some extent, has performance anxiety. You're in front of everyone. There's expectations of you. Um, you haven't done it before, so you don't know how anything you do is going to go, whether it's going to be successful, whether it's going to fall flat. And... You know, essentially, you just have to trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's it's almost like it's it's the feel the fear and do it anyway kind of mentality. You have to you have to go through that in order to get through these unknowns that we're going to experience. And I guess that's really going to be true for just any life event going on where that, that causes some kind of anxiety. It's feel the fear, do it anyway, whether it's standing up in front of a crowd and speaking or it's leading people on some kind of adventure helping people make therapeutic progress. It's all, there's all anxiety in place in those situations. Um, sometimes you might tell people, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with this right now, and so this is what this is going to be like, but it may not fit into a therapeutic role to say, yeah, I'm not a professional here, so <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do the best we can together. Yeah, I, I would agree and disagree with point of, with part of that. Um, yeah, it doesn't strike confidence in your clients when you put it out that way. But at the same time, it can be um, very freeing for them. So I think something a lot of clients experience, a lot of new DMs experience, just I, everyone experience is to a certain extent is this idea that I don't know what I'm doing. All these other people seem to know what they're doing and seem to have a good handle on it, even if they're doing it for the first time as well. But the reality is that that's a commonality among all of us. If, if we haven't done something, if we're experiencing something for the first time, it creates a ton of anxiety. And that anxiety is normal and it will go away the more you do something, but not until you do it. Yeah. So it, it's jump in and get your feet wet and, uh, then go process afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what? That's That goes back to what we were talking about as far as D&D possibly being like a training ground for things that you may be looking to do in your real life. Now, even if it's only representative. So yeah, we, most of us aren't concerned about how we're going to react when we encounter an orc in the woods on our way to work. Right. But... <laughs> Some type of interaction that we're going through in game, a lot of, you know, whether it's whether it's trying to convince somebody that you're going to help them, that you're not an enemy, or whether it's trying to talk your way out of a certain situation or just stand up for yourself. A lot of these things, they happen throughout the course of a D&D campaign. Was there any point in which you were doing something managerial, something, uh, something leadership oriented, and you found that paladin coming through you. Hmm. Okay. If not immediate, probably not, but <laughs> I just thought, you know, you can kind of feel the channel of this part of your character, your personality coming through maybe. I, so I, 
something, not a specific event, but something I can relate to in general. Um, as you were talking about the characters that you like to play, um, kind of the ones that stand in the background, the chaotic good, um, we have a lot of similarities there. And as I said, primarily I was the one that would like to rail against authority. You know, I'm kind of an old school punk rocker. So when <laughs> I became an authority figure, it's like identity existential crisis. What do I do now? Uh-huh. And you know, part of being a manager, part of being a supervisor is setting those boundaries and being responsible for enforcing them. And sometimes they get crossed, even by people who are well-meaning. And it was very difficult for me at first to kind of lay down the law. I almost don't even like, still don't like saying it in those terms. Yeah. When it was, when I was put in those situations, it goes against my natural personality. So thinking, all right, it's like, what would my character, what would Colonel Rogatharak do in this situation? And um, it was helpful. Yeah, I like that. Uh, what would my character do? That That's a really helpful sort of mentality. I, I can tell you, we're just talking about similarities now, but I can tell you that coming into a supervision role where I was suddenly, the buck stops here, um, when I've spent my whole life railing against authority, was a really <laughs> challenging place to be. And it still is to some extent, although I think I've gotten better at being a, a leader and, and taking the role of trying to, point people in the right direction but before it was just like "Ah, you do what you do it's all up to you (laughs) and that's that's not a mentality that a supervisor can really hold because there are expectations that we have to meet and uh, unfortunately there are roles we have to play and so I, I, I probably really my job is role playing and I need to just realize that I just need to convert that to the table yeah because you convert it to the table and it'll convert to your real life as well yeah, so there's a back and forth going on there. So getting into the work you do, uh, you're seeing this in the children you're working with. Do you do you have some examples of how this shows up at the table with these kids? Absolutely. So one of my favorite examples that I can think of um, comes in terms of conflict resolution. So... The children were, or the kids' characters were in this dungeon and they were going through it. And they went to this room where they saw a whole bunch of different skeleton warriors that were sitting at various dinner tables and they had the key to get into the next room. Two of them were arguing back and forth over who was the better warrior. You know, one was the warrior with a sword, one was the warrior with a spear, and they just couldn't solve it. Um... One of the skeletons said, hey, I'm trying to eat my dinner here, pushing around, you know, a chicken bone and I can't eat and I can't concentrate if they keep arguing. If you can get them to stop arguing, then I'll give you the key. We'll allow you to get into the next room. So the kids came up with all various ideas. First, um, you know, the the simple one that, oh, why don't you just fight and see whoever wins that will um, decide the winner. I thought that might be a little bit too easy. So when they tri- when the skeletons tried to fight each other, there were force fields that prevented them from attacking uh, or causing okay. any damage. Um, because also I, I wanted to try to facilitate them coming up with an idea for conflict resolution that wasn't just fighting and whoever won. Yeah. yeah. 
would be on top or, you know, would win the argument. Um, so one of the children came up with the idea of, hey, how about you guys have a race across the room and whoever is the fastest will, you know, that's who decides this argument. And they go, okay, that sounds like a good idea. We're going to race, but we're going to be so busy racing and we're going to be putting our all into it that we're not going to see who wins if it's going to be really close. So who's going to judge? Um, one of the other children jumped in immediately like, I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge. The other child who came up with the idea for how about you race like, well, I want to judge them. I'm the one that came up with the idea. And those kids started arguing back and forth out of character you know, over who is going to judge this race. Finally, one of the children said, you know what? I really want to do this, but it seems like this means a lot more to you. Why? You have it. So then I had the skeletons go, they stop. They stop their arguing. They turn and they look at them and they say, wait a minute. I never thought we could do that before. I never thought we could just say, hey, you know what? This isn't worth arguing over. Let's just resolve it. So the child who decided to do that was rewarded by the skeletons. Yeah. I love the story. It, it's one of my favorites from the group so far. And completely improv, had not planned on any of that. I just kind of set up the scenario of, hey, these skeletons are arguing. The kids are going to have to find a way to get them to stop arguing. So you knew at least you were dealing with a conflict resolution problem that you were trying to put into your game, but you didn't really know what the outcome was going to be. Right. And as so many others have talked about, that's one of the differences between therapeutic gaming and the game being run by a therapist versus, you know, just any other normal D&D game is that there's the intentionality there. I know some of the goals that the children in my group are working on and I'm putting things in place specifically to help them move in that direction. Now, if I make it too explicit, too scripted and prompted, then I I personally don't think they're going to get as much out of it. They're going to they're going to see it as, "Oh, okay, I see exactly what he's doing here." And <laughs> I see through your old therapy lie. Yeah, and it'll go, it'll shift right back to that whole idea of, oh, mom and dad's making me come to therapy because, you know, they want this changed and they want that changed. But if I just kind of put these scenarios in place that really kind of flow with the storyline as well, then I they get that practice, they get to gain the skills, they get some insight without it seeming like it's being shoved down their throat. Yeah, so immersion is what keeps them engaged because they, they don't want to see themselves as being uh, manipulated or changed by somebody on the outside. But if the story is good enough, if the if the play is good enough, then they can kind of lose that and be immersed in the game so that they're just like solving the problem as they would in any D&D &D game that would, they would come across. But I like the, the, the idea of intentionality being the maybe the game mechanic that you're looking for as as a therapeutic dm because you're you're trying to set up situations that are ambiguous enough that they don't show through as obvious therapeutic uh you know red herrings but also so that there's 
enough structure to it that the kids are learning the skill that you're trying to help them learn. And that's got to be a difficult balance to strike until you get used to doing it on a regular basis. Oh, certainly. And as I said, just about like jumping in to the DM role or into other roles where we don't have as much experience and we have anxiety, it's one of those things that play it by ear. Not everything is going to land, but over time you get more of a feel for it. And I, I've definitely experienced that running these groups. And and again, I'm, I'm still fairly early on in doing it. I was, I was, I did some role-playing game aspects and works with individual clients at different agencies I've worked at, but it's really only been recently that I've gotten this started after being inspired by so many of the other folks. Now, were you accepted pretty clearly early on when you started trying to bring this into into these therapeutic venues that you're working in or was it was there a pushback i was lucky enough that i was accepted in most of the agencies where i was working at in philadelphia it was it was more so of okay here are your clients work with your clients the way that you see fit and you know, through supervision, we'll kind of help bounce ideas back and forth. And if it seems to be working, great. If it's not working, if we're getting complaints, then it's an issue and you need to change. And in most of the cases where I was doing it, you know, I was seeing some positive results from the kids. So I was lucky enough not to get too much pushback. See, that that's lucky because and I'm not sure if it's regional because I know some people are experiencing more pushback than others. Um, so it, it's interesting to see how different institutions ally or push back against this idea because it's it's a little bit you know to to our point that you know we're both rebellious people it's a little bit rebellious against the normal therapeutic stance for us to be saying oh no i'm going to bring my hobby in and i'm going to make my hobby part of your therapy um but it it's uh i don't know i, I don't know what, if there's maybe a particular bent in therapeutic in therapeutic training that says you know you can't do this um, but what, what is your background in therapy? Did you, what's your modality? So like a lot of therapists, I would initially claim I'm an eclectic therapist. I take different <laughs> aspects of psychodynamic theory, different aspects of behavioral theories, but at my core, I would say that I am an existential therapist, um, more along the lines of logotherapy, uh, Victor Frankl mm -hmm. and you know, primarily I would apply that to working with adults because, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot of pretty high-end philosophy where yeah, yeah. the concept of freedom, responsibility, isolation are really at the forefront. And for the longest time, I never really applied that to work, my work with children. Most of my work with children was more behavioral. Um, but as I've moved into using Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games, I've really seen how a lot of those concepts can play out. I mean, one of the differences between Dungeons and Dragons and playing a video game is kind of the absolute freedom. You can do whatever your, your character wants to do. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of certain button combinations or what the programming will allow. It's whatever your creativity allows is what you can do. But... On the flip side, with the good DM, there's the responsibility as well because there will be consequences for whatever your character decides to do. Right, same as a video game, but you're 
the DM also has the chance to be creative on the fly and make those consequences match the needs at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And that's, again, where the skill of improvisation is so important. It's so important as a good DM, but I, I would say doubly, triply important for the therapeutic DM because you have to think on the fly, given that um, the children or clients that you're working with have that absolute freedom. Um, they can come up with anything that they want to do. You have to think of the appropriate consequence, how that's going to affect the world, but also how it, what is that consequence going to teach? How is that going to help forward the therapeutic goals? So it's very directed in that way. So uh, talking with uh, Dr. Quinones about uh, this difference of directed thera- directed play therapy versus non-directed play therapy, it, it, that part is very directed. The part where you can do anything you want to in the game is very non-directed, but then the fact that there is someone sort of in the seat of power setting the tone for things makes it very directive. And I, I think that's the balance that we're looking for. Sometimes I wonder, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this, this crazy idea that we're going we're gonna to add games to therapy and we're going to make therapy and we're almost going to create a modality out of gaming within therapy, even though it's backed by all these other sort of philosophies from, from psychology. And what I come across is I, I have the devil's advocate voice in my, in my head saying, you know, well, why is this not just our own personal ego getting in the way? Like, I just want to do my thing, and I want you to do my thing with me. How do we get past that? How have you dealt? Is there something where you've dealt with that? Yeah, so that's um, that's a very complicated question, <laughs> and I probably don't have all the answers for that one. I think that there is room for folks that are coming from various modalities to work in this setting, to run role-playing games, to run other games, and they can put their their therapeutic spin on it from the modality that they use. Um, as far as like the criticism that goes, I think it's still, it's worth looking at because any criticism you, you want to be able to test. You want to be able to see, okay, is this something that I need to be aware of to kind of check myself in the way that I'm doing this so that I can do therapy better? And I think this still is something that is in its beginning stages and new and all of us as a community of you know therapeutic game masters are still trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, and so much of it is trial and error. I think that's what it comes down to. It's, I mean, if I go to the earliest origins of my thought in this process, I was going to go to therapy sessions and I was trying to find ways to engage kids to talk to me. And while I've, I think I've got a great personality and sometimes I'm able to really connect with somebody, sometimes you need some activity between you in order to, to build that relationship. And so very early on, without having any training in the idea whatsoever, I would bring games and find ways to use games in the session. And I, I think that's what we're doing here is we are creating something that hasn't been created before. And I guess in answer to my own question, it's no different than music therapy where, you know, you probably love really love music and you start bringing music into, into therapy and then it becomes a therapeutic practice because you put the will to it to make it work. 
<clears throat> so really, maybe then your passions are what work best in a in a therapeutic session. So there, because there is, you know, I'm not a non-entity in the room when I'm with somebody. I'm, I bring my own history and my own background and my own everything. So might as well bring it all forward and bring games in too. Oh, absolutely. You can't avoid it. And, you know, as we're talking about different modalities and how certain ones might be critical of what we're doing as far as the game masters and if we're putting too much of our own stuff on there. Well, the majority of studies show that for the best outcomes, the one single most important factor is the therapeutic relationship. And part of building that therapeutic relationship is, for me at least, has been finding commonality finding common interests. And if having fun playing a certain game is a commonality that you can find, I think that's only going to do positive things for building that therapeutic relationship. That's, I couldn't have said it better because, so 10th grade is when I had my first psychology class. And I remember being really confused by all these different modalities they gave us. You know, they're talking about behaviorism, talking about psychoanalysis and all these different things. I was like, what, how do you choose? How does, what do you, how do you make sense? And they said, you know, 80% of your work as a therapist, I think he said 80% of the time, is all about rapport building and building relationship. It's like, well, I can do that. 80% is, is how much you care about your client. I can do that. So that was kind of the motivational factor. And then I meet up with Josue Cardona, who runs Geek Therapy. And he says, you know, the thing that is most important here is that it, you're, it's a cultural awareness of the other to be able to use what they enjoy as a tool for their own growth in a way that kind of directs them properly. And that's where geek therapy is born from, the idea that what we pay attention to, what we enjoy already, is already providing some therapeutic value to it. We just got to kind of harness that information and, and use it for someone. And that re- that message really resonated with me. So um, I, I think that really is the answer to my devil's advocate position is that when you approach something with your passion and you connect with somebody over their passion, you have a better chance of building something together than you would if you go in. Like, To be honest, if I went in and I, I mean, I hope that as a good therapist, I hope that I could go in and really talk to someone who was into ice skating. But I have no background in this whatsoever. And so my ability to connect with them over that is a lot harder than if I come in and they say, yeah, I play role-playing games. Do you play role-playing games? Yes, I do. We have something to talk about suddenly. So, Oh, yeah, I get that completely. And as a therapist in my work with adults, with teenagers, with children, as I'm building that relationship, the first, in, traditional, in a traditional therapy setting, the first thing that I'm trying to figure out is, like, what do we have in common? What is something that may be related to therapy, may be completely unrelated that we do have common ground on. And and I found that no matter who the person is, if you look hard enough, you can find something that you have in common with them. Um, Something that makes me think, I remember working with a client years ago who, an adult male who was in therapy because essentially his wife had made him him go to therapy. He didn't want to be there. And as I said before, (laughs) you need to want it. And... I spent probably a good few months just talking about football with him. Nothing related to therapy. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, when I have, when I tell this to my supervisees, they're like, well, how do you document that? How do you put that? That's not therapy. That's not evidence-based practice. Say I'm relation, I'm building the therapeutic relationship. I'm having a discussion of shared interests slowly, but surely over time, last five minutes of the session, he'd really get into details about isolation, details about depression. When it got to a certain point that he came in one day and, you know, I wanted to talk to him about the games from the week before. He's like, no, 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 we can't talk about this. We got other stuff and then dove right into (laughs) the traditional work. So with children, children like to play. And that's one thing we immediately have in common for us adult gamers. I, I, I like to think for most of us, we're kind of just children that never or, you know, adults that never really grew up. Yeah. Yeah, and so that we connect on that level. Uh, I love this football story because that that's that's so great because it just illustrates that you can take anybody's passion and make it a way of creating safe space for them. Yeah, and, and it was really helpful. And it again, I, I'm thinking of the client. Um, he was a fan of the rival team to the team that I support. So mm-hmm. for a lot of those first few sessions, he again, one of his pastimes was just like cutting it up and like busting on his friends. So we would go back and forth <laughs> talking trash on each other's teams. And that was how a lot of our sessions went for a while until then it just shifted. Like, okay, I trust this person. I get them. This is a safe place. Now I can get into some of the other stuff. So yeah, um, that us being able to talk to each other that way um, allowed him to trust me, to realize that I'm an okay guy and that there's other things he can talk to. You know, he could allow himself to be What it really says, that. I think, in the face of all this, um, this evidence-based practice that seems to daunt us at every turn right now because of, ev- because of you know, managed care basically taking a more extreme role in watching whether or not we're doing our jobs or not. Um, what it says is that building the container, this safe container for the expression of self in a space that's non-judgmental, the, the basic humanistic principles, what it says is that that is the most important aspect of this and the evidence-based practices, for what they're worth, they come after. Because the first thing to do is to build relationship. Now, you, we may talk about the efficiency of building that relationship, because we don't want to spend maybe 30 sessions getting to know everything about each other. But there has to be some bridge between I don't know you and I'm sitting in front of you to I'm willing to tell you about the traumas in my life. There has to be some bridge. You cannot just walk in and say, so tell me about your your abuse as, as a child. It doesn't work. People don't do it. So you have to connect with them over something that's meaningful that makes them feel like, yeah, okay, this guy's in my corner, this person's in my corner, they're going to take care of me. Yeah, they, they, they need to have those positive experiences, they need to feel that trust, that safety, because, yeah, a lot of folks aren't going to just come in and talk about that abuse or that trauma. But also, on the other hand, you know what, some folks do come in and they try to do that, but if that relationship isn't established, that rapport isn't established, then it could be very harmful, it can be very damaging. The therapist, even almost, you need to take a step back if they're already giving you too much disclosure early on. You just kind of take a step back and say, "Well, wait a minute. Let's get to know each other. Let's let's make sure that you fully trust me before we get deep into this this thing that you're trying to tell me." When when you asked me before about um, 
specific experience in working with children that I found helpful in kind of the training grounds. Um, I just thought of one more that I'd like to share. Um, so one aspect that I think is really important for Dungeons and Dragons and well, the therapeutic role-playing games, especially the intentionality and how therapists can set it up is that anymore. And may maybe this is just me being the old guy shaking my <laughs> fist, like, Oh, it's not like it used to be in that, you know, I, I work in the city in Philadelphia and a common issue that I see is that so many of the children, they don't go outside. They don't socialize. Um, they spend almost all of their leisure time sitting alone, playing video games. Now, again, video games can have a lot of therapeutic benefits within themselves, but there's that isolation piece and there's certain things that they're missing out on that, you know, when I was young, I played board games, I played video games, but I also spent a lot of time running around my neighborhood. Kids on bikes. Kind of living that uh, kids we on bikes type Doug's experience. Oh yeah. I, I mean, Doug's a great guy. He, he ran a great teens in space game for me when I was at uh, Save Against Fear. Um, but the aspect of, so th this happened in session where the children came upon a hut in the woods and there was a treasure chest outside. And immediately they tried to just open the treasure chest and steal from it. And the treasure chest is, tra is trapped. So then they just decide, we're gonna smash this treasure chest open. They do, and then the wizard comes out who lived in the hut, much more powerful than them. They're like first, second level at this point. He's 10th, 12th level wizard and says, you know, what did you do? This is my house. You came and you just smashed my chest. Now you're going to have to go on a quest for me to repay me for what it's going to take to repair this chest. And it was something that was upsetting to the children because the quest that they were on had a very specific timeline. Mm. And... I use that on purpose. It's very similar to kind of one of the common tropes that a lot of us face in childhood. I'm thinking like, you know, playing baseball outside and you hit the ball through the neighbor's window and then you're working it off for the next few weeks <laughs> and you learn responsibility that way. So uh, something that I try to do with my games is to try to input scenarios that will teach some of those lessons that a lot of children just naturally get, but a lot of children may be missing out on, especially if they're in situations where they're in their house all day, they're not having the same type of socialization. And for a lot of kids in the city that I work with for good reason, because their parents are, the neighborhoods aren't very safe where they can't just be let to go outside in that kids on bikes type scenario. Mm -hmm. That's great. I love that. Um, I, I think that there's, I, I mean, I know that the Adams are putting together Critical Core, which is, uh, is it, it's Critical Core, right? Yeah. So I know they're putting, I can't believe I forgot it. I know they're putting that together and they're giving us some guidelines, but I think these, these guidelines that you're giving right now are, they should be kind of put into any particular therapeutic role-playing situation because they're, they're providing some really good direction for your, for your plan as a DM. Um, thank, thank you so much. That's, that's so nice to hear, especially as again, I'm new, I'm getting started at, I'm just getting started. You know, as we talked a little bit about, 
there for me personally there's this imposter syndrome because I went from thinking I was the first person to come up with this idea to seeing all of these other folks especially the really established folks um, and still even though I've been a therapist for many years and I've done this here and there this is still a very new concept for me so yeah well I I think you're not alone in the imposter syndrome because I get in front of people like Adam and Jack and all these different people that are doing this amazing work. And I'm like, I am just a little private in this army right now. <laughs> I don't really have, I don't, I don't have much of an idea of which way to go or how to, how to get it out there. So um, I think the imposter syndrome comes up a lot. And, and Tim pointed it out um, in a recent conversation that I had with him. Just the idea that when you get up there on stage and actually present in front of people, that's when some of that goes away because people are paying attention to what you say and they're hanging on your words and they're making it part of their life and that's when you can start to feel a little bit of empowerment and plus you know the idea that that we're having these conversations among us that says yeah you're not the only one you're not the only one dealing with this craziness and uh my feeling is just let's band together and make sure that we're creating something that's meaningful for all of us and we all have a voice in the creation of it so while I'm excited that all these different little pockets are growing up, I think the ultimate sort of maturity of it all is for us all to have a big, a big damn guidebook that will say these are what you. This is the kind of things you can do in an RPG, not not an evidence-based practice per se, where they kind of prescript everything you do, but a set of possibilities that we've all kind of learned through trial and error. This works in these therapeutic situations. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think that would be great. And, you know, I'd always be more than willing to work with anyone on it. I And, you know, speaking of Tim, he gave such a great presentation at PAX Unplugged. And, you know, it was so nice to see everyone when I, when I went to Save Against Fear earlier this year. Yeah. I, I almost just wanted to cry tears of joy because when I started doing this again, I even knowing that the Donna group was out there, Game to Grow was out there, I felt like I was just doing this in a bubble, in isolation. And then when we met and I met Tim and I met some of the others and then got to see folks again at PAX Unplugged, I realized this is really growing. This, I mean, it's already a thing within the next few years with more and more people becoming interested in it, with your podcast really, you know, rolling for change, really highlighting what's going on. I think it's gonna explode. I'd like to think we have that kind of audience, but I really hope so, um, because I, in a sense, I want to be, I haven't really put together this yet, that I, I want there to be like a, a mission statement for Rolling for Change, but one of the things I wanted it to do is, is to connect all of us. I wanted it to um, explore all these possibilities that games offer us, whether they offer us something in a business setting, a therapeutic setting, a teaching setting, whatever setting we might put it into. I wanted to kind of explore all that, and, and now it's it's almost just to make sure that we're all recognizing that we're all out here and doing this work. So I'm hoping that my audience is a combination of therapists who are learning how to do this <laughs> and people who didn't realize their games were therapeutic or people who realized that their games are therapeutic and didn't really have a voice for it prior to, and then finally just kind of waking up, waking the, masses up the masses to say, hey, what we're doing as game players makes a difference in our lives and let's celebrate that. So that there, there's my, 
there's my mission statement that I'm working towards at some point in the near future. I think that's a great mission statement. And again, I just want to say, Woody, I, I really appreciate what you're doing with this. And as I said, I am so honored and thankful for you to have me on. So I think that's a great mission statement. I And I would put that out there and say, anyone who is listening, who is apprehensive, who is nervous, who thinks, yeah, I've, I've been a therapist or I do this and I play D&D, but I don't think I can do both. I don't think I can combine them. I would say, give it a shot. You know, get as much information as you can from as many different sources and just give it a try. And yeah, it's not going to go perfectly and smoothly every single time, but you'll do it. You're going to see what works and... You know, you'll go from there and you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the more that we gather together and discuss the challenges that we face at the table and away from the table, the more likely we are going to create something that's meaningful for all of us and for our clients. So it, it's it's just I, I get really almost like I won't say teary-eyed, but I get really kind of starry-eyed because I, I just see this thing growing and I get excited that I'm even a part of it and, and that it's something that I, I have some faith in. Um, I, I, I know I'd, it's interesting. I, before we started, I said, let's start talking about PAX, and then I just completely launched into something not about PAX at all. So you just came back from – we both just came back from PAX Unplugged where there was a ton of uh, therapeutic uh, panels that were – going on uh which is a fan fantastic thing that, that such even happens what was your experience of pax like well uh, unfortunately this year um i had a lot of scheduling difficulties so i did get a chance to volunteer for the afk rooms put on by i thrive and mm -hmm. i'd say that that was a really good experience for anyone that doesn't know about those um at different conventions around the country I Thrive Gaming puts together AFK rooms for folks that are overstimulated, that are having a hard time with anything, or just need a quiet place to come and relax and get away from the conference. So that was a really good experience for me. It, it did take up, uh, so I volunteered. They have therapists and other volunteers to sit in the room and to talk to anybody if, you know, if that's needed. Um, so I, I spent a good amount of time in there. Um, I got to go around the conference, meet up with some friends, meet up, you know, we met up Woody, got to meet up and talk a little bit, prepare for this and see Jack. And, you know, I, I'd say PAX for me was again, reaffirming what Save Against Fear did. Seeing yeah. that there are other therapists out there a lot a lot more than I would have thought that are interested in this. Yeah, so I, just to clarify, I thought that the AFK room was a take this operation and not I thrive. Oh, you know what? You are completely right. <laughs> you are completely right. I am getting things mixed up. <laughs> you know what? I, I, and you know what? That was part of PAX. I, I got the chance to meet so many different people from so many different organizations. And it's still shortly after that I have to organize it all on all in my mind. Yeah. Okay. So I I, I just wanted to make sure I was uh, I was clear on that. Um, not that I thrive is not something to pay attention to, but uh, AFK is is uh, from Take This. Um, but what is it like to? So it's it's the position is called Psychomancer, right? 
And so what is it like to be in that position? Because I've, I've always kind of wanted to volunteer, but I also want to go see the panels. I want to play the games. So it's hard for me to kind of balance that. What is it like to be that person? One thing that I, I could say for this year that it was great. They had so many volunteers. So for a lot of the shifts that I did, there were at times there were as many volunteers in the room as there were folks coming into the room. And that was perfect because then anybody that needed to talk to somebody that wanted to, or, or just wanted to have somebody sit at the table with them while uh, they colored or while they meditated or while they relaxed would almost have a one-on-one -on -one experience. So I think that was something really great that they got together. Um, my first shift was the first shift of the conference. So not very busy. You know, I, I think folks were just coming in. If anything, they needed to de-escalate just because of some of the lines. But other than that, it was a good experience. It, I mean, it was also as a therapist that is using therapeutic gaming, it was a good experience to get to meet and talk to others because most of the folks who do volunteer either are therapists or are working in the field in some facet. And so does that end up being a talking position a lot or is it more like just holding a space for people I, I would say it's more holding a space for people um the majority of folks that come into the room are just looking for a quiet place to relax um yeah. part of part of my experience of volunteering for the room is just they try to keep everything as quiet as possible with as little stimulation as possible so it really can be kind of that retreat away from what can what I found myself, even as a very extroverted person, to be a very overstimulating conference. Yeah, it, it it's not as bad as, as Gen Con, but it is a very, like, the, I there were times I wanted to go to the AFK room, and I just didn't feel like I had the option to do so. But if I could have, <laughs> I would have been down there just to have that, that momentary respite from, from the chaos that is PAX Unplugged. I, I do really like the timing of it now because, as I said, I, I my experience at Save Against Fear, I would almost say life-changing, especially making all of these initial connections with others around the country doing the same thing. And then PAX Unplugged happens, you know, a couple months after. So I, to me, PAX Unplugged almost felt like a reunion of yeah. the folks that I met from Save. Yeah, there was a lot of that for me, too. Um, but I don't think it's normally, uh, at Christmas time, like it was this time. I think next year it's, it's before Thanksgiving. So I don't know when save against fear will be, but, um, I, I have the feeling I need to be at both now and <laughs> I got to figure out how to, how to make it all work so I can be at both. And then people talk about Metatopia. I'm like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to get to all these cons. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's tricky. That That's something I plan for the future to travel a little bit more outside. I'm really spoiled being in the Philadelphia area that, is, you know, it's not too far of a drive to go to save against fear. And then PAX Unplugged is right in my backyard. Yeah. And Metatopia is not far away either. Cause I think that's New, Jer New Jersey. Um, so, uh, yeah, down here in the South, we just have the one big convention. We have tons of game conventions, but nothing like Nothing with this expo kind of feel like like PAX Unplugged gives, so it just kind of gives the it's the most scaled down version of Gen Con I've been to, but yet it, man, it manages to maintain that energy of Gen Con while still being more being smaller basically. Um, yeah, and 
as, as you said, there were there were some um, therapeutic gaming panels, and I really, really hope that you know as the years go on at PAX Unplugged and at some of the other larger conferences that they keep giving space for us. I think it's really important, and I think if you just look at the attendance, yeah, know, the, play, the rooms were packed for the therapeutic gaming panels. That's true, and and people were speaking intelligently that were asking questions. It wasn't just a matter of like people who didn't know what we were talking about. The people are being educated and know about the therapeutic aspects of what we do uh, of gaming. And so that that's really exciting to see an audience who is interested in, and educated on mental health issues enough to come to a panel in the midst of a gaming convention. Yeah, I hope they always give this space. They gave it the first year. I wasn't there last year. And then they gave it this year. So I imagine that it's kind of part of PAX just in general, because I, I haven't gone to PAX East or PAX, all these other PAXs, but I understand there's always uh, some kind of uh, therapeutic aspect there. There have been therapeutic panels on all PAXs. So maybe one day I'll get to talk to PAX and ask them, well, what motivates you to do this and what do you see? I'd really like to do that. I'd really like to talk to the people who run PAX. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're part of the conversation. I was talking to Jack from Bodana Group. Uh, I was commenting that next year, all of us need to get together and just submit so many panels just to make sure, you know, that we continue to have that space there. And every, everybody submit multiple panels and invite everyone else on as their guests. Absolutely. I, I think that's the way because we, we submitted panel possibilities this year, too, but they, they kind of turned us down and said we've already got our, our stuff. But um, it, it also... I think it for them it also has to be that you're offering something new each year. And so what we were offering was kind of a continuation of what we did the first year, which was kind of an explanation of what Rolling for Change is and and uh, w the work that we've been doing just kind of educate people on therapy and, and gaming. Um, but I, I think that... I think that it requires, like like the one panel I saw was conflict resolution. I think it requires that you offer something different each time in order to get their attention. But I think that PAX is interested. So yeah, I got to get a hold of the, the creators of PAX and find out what they have to say about all this, this therapeutic stuff they allow to happen. That that's great to hear. I'll, I'll have to make sure I don't wait until the last minute next year. Like I had mentioned, waiting to the last minute for preparing for games and things like that, and improvising a lot. When it comes to the panels, won't be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you're right. We all need to invite each other in, so that we're all able to share the stage together. But there's a lot of people now. Oh yeah, but I, again, my my experience of Save, my experience of Pax, and I know a few other folks have mentioned this. One of the things that makes me so happy is that everybody seems so willing to work together, to help each other out, to share information. No, nobody's being a dragon, hoarding what they have and saying, mine, don't use this. Yeah, everybody's trying to help one another out. And, and that's what we need to do because our collective voice is going to be more meaningful than individuals who are just kind of hiding off in a corner and making their own thing. We have to shake hands, come together, and, and uh, deal with the deal with the distances between us so that we can address it as a group. I, I think that's really important. Absolutely. And I think just by the nature of what we do really helps to facilitate that because we get together at the conventions, we play a, we play a one shot with each other. And I, I'm a firm believer that if you play Dungeons and Dragons with a group, 
you know, for a couple hours, that's equal to multiple days spent doing other activities as far as bonding and, you know, building that rapport and getting to know people. Yeah, I agree. Um, so Brennan, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I, I feel like I've learned a lot more about Role for Progress. Um, if our listeners want to check out the work you do, where can they go to find more up, out about Role for Progress? So our main website is www.rollforprogress.com. Um, we are on Twitter. I have my name, Brennan Jordan, at Role for Progress. And okay. Instagram under Role for Progress. Now, I think I have all that right. With all the new social media stuff, I'm yeah. not super up to date. My wife helps me with a lot of that stuff. It's hard to keep up with a lot of it. Um, but that's great. So people can reach out to you and, and check out your work. And if you're in the Philadelphia area, they can they can get their child on your waiting list if they want to. I'm just curious, do you do adults also? Um, I haven't started with adults yet, but if adults were interested, I would definitely be open to that. Okay. Because I, I think adults can probably get something out of this as well. Obviously, since we're therapists playing games and we're getting something out of it, we can we can probably give that same experience to adults. It's just a different format. Oh, certainly. And again, if there are any therapists that are listening in the Philadelphia area that would like to collaborate, that would like to help out, please contact me. Exactly. And uh, same goes for here in Georgia. If you are in Georgia and you're doing some kind of gaming and therapy, please talk to me. All right. Well, Brennan, once again, thanks so much for coming on. It's really exciting to talk to you, and uh, um, I, I know that we will talk again and, and work on some things again. So Certainly. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Woody. All right, and to everybody else out there, you know what to do. Keep on rolling for progress. Thanks so much for listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. If you want to geek out and do good, join us at network.geektherapy.com. If instead you want to join the Geek Therapy Party, drop into our Discord chat at geektherapy.com forward slash Discord. There you can talk about all your favorite media and games, and you'll find an audience to hang out with. To send us email, use gamers at rollingforchange.com. And finally, our Twitter account is at Roll for Change. Our theme music is provided by the one and only Rocket Scientists. You can find all of their work over at Bandcamp.com. May the returning light illuminate your gaming experience, season's greetings, and keep on rolling for change. Thank you.